0: you're listening to Southside Baptist Church podcast with our pastor Dr. Jeff Parker. For more audio content, please refer to our website at ssbaptistchurch.com. Let's pray together. Our heavenly Father, we just come to you, Lord, and Lord, we love you so much. We praise you, dear Lord, you alone are worthy to be praised, to receive all the honor and glory. Lord, we ask you, dear Lord, even now as we look to your word, that you would open up our hearts, that you would speak into us, dear Lord, such a way, in such a way, that we would walk out of here never the same. Lord, we ask you to do what only you can do. And that is, dear Lord, to empower your Holy Spirit in us dear lord to receive what you want to say so we pray dear lord that you would break down every obstruction every distraction everything that would hinder your word and lord that your word would be so clearly spoken to us that we would never be the same lord this is a difficult passage of scripture Uh, i feel ill-equipped it's been a busy last several days dear lord you know your you know your servant you know your messenger. You know my weaknesses, my inabilities, dear Lord, even as I come to approach a passage like this and just physically, dear Lord, tired. But Lord, I know that you can do what you can do, and that is everything. And so, Lord, we just trust you. We don't look to man, we look to you. And we pray, dear Lord, that you would cleanse us, that you would forgive us, and you, dear Lord, would speak to us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. You can take your Bibles. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 6. And um, we're we're looking at a difficult passage of Scripture. It's one of those passages that I would... Yeah, you can remain standing. Go ahead and remain standing for the reading of God's Word. In Genesis chapter 6, beginning with verse 1, when men begin to increase in number on the earth. Now remember, this is... The uh, first five books of the Bible are called the Pentateuch. They are written by who? Who are they written by? Written by, boy, that was pitiful. Written by who? They were written by Moses, inspired by God's Holy Spirit. Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And uh, we've been kind of taking a pilgrimage. we call called this series Beginnings because literally, if you translate the Hebrew word, therefore, Genesis, it is the word beginnings. Now, we come to a passage that I'm going to be honest with you is very, very difficult. and I need you to listen closely. Some of you are already smiling, thinking, okay. Reggie kind of laughed as we were walking out of the office, and he said, wow, I get so many questions about this, I'm looking forward to this one. Well, I, you may have more questions when you leave than when you came in here. So, uh, you know, just just bear with me. And Genesis chapter 6, picking, picking up at verse 1 again, when men begin to increase in number on the earth... And daughters were born to them, the sons of God. And that little phrase right there, we're going we're to camp on that a little bit. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. And they married any, any of them they chose. Now, then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with men forever, for he is mortal and his days will be 120 years of age. Now, 120 years. Now, let me stop right here real quickly and camp just a moment and say to you, that doesn't mean that all of us are going to live to be 120. In fact, we don't even know that that necessarily is Moses inspired by the Holy Spirit, God saying to man, uh, the limit's going to be 120. What most theologians believe is that was a prophetic word as to the time of the building of the ark and the flood, the initiating of God's judgment. Now let's pick back up. In verse 4, the Nephilim. Now there's another word we're going to have to camp out a minute. And Reggie is again laughing, as are some people that are in seminary or taking seminary courses. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination, every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain isn't that a isn't that an interesting picture of the character of God to see God? God is grieved, and the Bible said he is Pained in his heart, verse seven. So the Lord said, "I will wipe mankind, whom I have created, from the face of the earth. Men and animals and creatures that move along the ground, birds of the air. For I am grieved that I made them." But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Let's pray together again, Lord. Again, we pray for Your Holy Spirit to uh, just give me the wisdom, dear Lord, and. Give all of us the wisdom to somehow, dear Lord, understand this passage. Pray that you cleanse me and use me as a vessel. In the name of Jesus, amen. You can be seated. When I uh, was with the IMB, when I was with the International Mission Board for a time, we were in Cornwall, England. And while we were in Cornwall, England, I became friends with a local business owner there in St. Austell, England. His name, his first name was Hassan. Hassan was a Muslim, and he was of Kurdish, Turkish descent. He was a a Kurd, and he was living there in England with his wife. They had no children, and and we began to develop a friendship, Sheila and I and the kids. I I pastored a church there in Bodmin, England. I was a church developer, and when we had finished on Sunday nights, we would always go by this place. He made the closest that we had had to to an American pizza, and uh, made a lot of these Mediterranean dishes, so we would go there, and they would call us back into the kitchen. The kids would play and run around in the kitchen, they'd give them free food, we'd get our pizza, then we'd go home, and we'd watch NFL football in England at about uh, about oh it was probably about eight or nine o'clock at night by the time we got home. and we'd watch football and enjoy that time of eating pizza and fellowshipping together. Over a course of time, I began to talk to this Kurd, this Turkish man, about the gospel and about Jesus Christ. I had, because of living in Africa, I knew a lot about Muslims and Islamic beliefs, had looked at the Quran, had studied the life of Muhammad, and and so we began to have some really intense dialogue back and forth. And there came a day that I took a Turkish language New Testament. And I gave it to Hassan, and when I gave it to him, I said, I'd like for you to take a look at this, and if you have any questions, ask me, or find out, and I'll do the best I can to answer those. Now, he read the New Testament in two days. He was just captivated by it. And so he wanted me to come back, so I went back that Tuesday... And I'll never forget, I walked in there, he smiled and said, I read that book that you gave me. I, I laughed because the Brits loved this place and they were all packed in there. It was lunchtime and, 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 and I said, you read the entire... We're having this conversation across the restaurant. I said, you read the entire New Testament in two days? He said, yes, I would have read it in one day, but I had a problem. I said, well, what was your problem? And I went back there, and we began to discuss. And I finally, I'll never forget, I looked at Hassan, this Muslim who had never read the Bible, never attended church, never been around any Christians. I said, if God were to invade his creation, who would he look like? Would he look like Muhammad, or would he look like Jesus? Immediately the answer was, he would look like Jesus. He said, you come back next Tuesday. I went back that next Tuesday, and I've told you this before. Again, it was at lunchtime. The Brits were packed in there, business people. It was just full. And I, he, when he saw me come in, he waved me back through the door into the kitchen. It was a big kitchen. When I walked in there, it was filled with Muslim businessmen who had come from London and surrounding areas. He had that New Testament, and he said, Now you tell them what you told me. I remember Hassan one day saying to me, "I have somebody I want you to meet." And it was an, a very old relative of his. He was, he was, he was almost like a Norman Rockwell picture. He was old. He had about Jeff. He may have had two or three teeth in his head. He was just old and weathered, and he was a Kurdish man. And he introduced me to this man, and he said, I want you to talk to my, it was a distant uncle, several, you know, a very old man. He said, I want you to talk to my uncle. So I sat down, and I'll never forget this, he pulled something out, and it was a piece of petrified wood. And he said, when I was a boy, he said, my grandfather carried me to the top of Mount Ararat. And he said, um, at a certain point, he gave me this. And he said, this is a piece of what my grandfather told me is from the ark. I'll never forget, I was holding this piece of petrified wood and I was looking at it and he was convinced. He told me unbelievable stories of that journey as a boy and the stories among the Kurdish people there in that part of Turkey. And I said, as I stood there looking at it and rubbing it, I was thinking to myself, am I holding a piece of wood that Noah held? Let me say this. You and I are at a difficult passage of Scripture, and today there's a lot of theological controversy. Now, In chapter 6, verses 2 through 4, I want you to go back. We're going to look at that again. If you see here, it says in verse 1, when men began to increase in number on the earth, daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. They married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with a man forever, for he's mortal, his days will be 120 years. And then it says, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of men went to the daughters of, of men, and had, the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of the men of renown. That first little section there, that little statement, sons of God, is a, a, a lot of theological controversy. And Let me just say it to you in a nutshell. There's some people, they look at that and they say, you know, sons of God, undoubtedly that, repra- that means the, the descendants... Of Seth. In other words, do you remember Cain killed Abel and eventually Adam and Eve had another son to replace Abel and that man's name was Seth. And so what it's saying here, the sons of God is a reference to the descendants of Seth marrying into the, to the line of Cain. Now are you with me? Say amen. The other is that this is a reference to fallen angels those angels that have fallen from their first estate and have intermarried within the human ranks, within humanity. And the question of the Nephilim has to do with that as well in verse 4. James Montgomery Boyce made this statement. I think this is good. He said the first verses of Genesis 6 are transitional verses. On the one hand, they wrap up the pre-flood history of the earlier chapters, chapters 1 through 5 showing the state of degeneracy to which the race had fallen. On the other hand, they prepare us for the story of Noah and the flood that is to follow. It was because of this degeneracy that we see in chapters 1 through 5 that the flood came. Unfortunately, he goes on to say, the meaning of these verses is not self-evident. They have raised numerous questions that have been discussed for years, So I don't think, let me say this, I don't think we're going to solve the mystery today, right? But what is this idea, the meaning of the sons of God? Now I told you it could mean it's talking about the line, and you have to understand the scripture traces a messianic line. That messianic line, the Messiah, Jesus, comes through the line of Seth, through the tribe of Judah, all the way through Mary and Joseph to Jesus. So the messianic line is traced from Genesis all the way to Revelation. So some theologians say, well, the sons of God, this has to do with that messianic line, the line of Seth, intermarrying into the line of Cain and thereby corrupting the messianic line, which is a serious thing. Now let me say this. Martin Luther held to this position. John Calvin held to this position. Augustine held to this position. In fact, Augustine included it in his book, The City of God. So when you look at this belief, you think, well, you know, that's a lot of, that's a lot of pretty tough theological giants there. Francis Schaeffer held to this position. Warren Wearsby holds to this position. Now, when you, when you think about it, and I thought about it, I thought, well, you know, that, that's, that's a pretty, pretty serious thing. So what I did is as I began to look at this, I began to, first of all, I used some strong, highly respected Presbyterians, and I didn't do that, David, because you're here and you were going to go to First Pres this morning, but I used a very well-respected uh, Presbyterian by the name of James Montgomery Boyce, and Boyce, is an, he is an exegetical giant in the field of preachers and in the academic world. And because he's a Presbyterian, I thought, well, it would be interesting to look at his thoughts on this passage. Then I also used some high-ranking Baptists. I looked at Herschel Hobbes and his understanding of this passage. Even though he's dead, he left a, a great lineage exegetically on this passage. And then I looked at John Phillips. But what is this Idea of fallen angels. Is this the line of Seth, the messianic line, intermarrying into the line of Cain and thereby possibly corrupting the messianic line? Or is this, in fact, fallen angels that have intermarried into humanity? Now, let me say this. The sons of God. Go back and look at that again. If you look at verse 2, the sons of God, you see that term there? The sons of God. Um, if you look at it again down in verse 4, and also afterward, when the sons of God, that phrase is used three times in the scripture. It's used in Job chapter 1 verse 6. You remember when Job, when the angels were coming and standing before God, it said it referred to them in the Hebrew as the sons of God. In other words, this angelic army. Now who's in that, who's in single file line waiting to stand before sovereign God and give an account? Diabola Satan himself. And you remember God says, where you been? Satan says, oh, you know, he's just like a teenager, all just messing around. Just going to and fro. And God picked a fight with the devil. He said, well, have you considered my servant Job, for there's none like him in all the world? You see the Bible says in the Hebrew here that they were referred to as the sons of God. In other words, this army, even Satan himself, was giving an account before sovereign God. Not only in in Job chapter 1 verse 6, Job chapter 2 verse, uh, verse 1 again, where they appear and it uses it again. In Job 38 verse 7, again it uses this phrase, the sons of God. If you have an NIV Bible, if you look this up, it will have the word angels instead of being translated sons of God. In other words, the translators of the NIV said this is so uh, settled in our minds that they didn't even bother to translate it sons of God. They just translated it angels. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses the word Angels, the idea being that the sons of God is a reference to fallen angels somehow intermarrying into the human race. Now, again, let me quote Boyce, James Montgomery Boyce, a Bible scholar, And I thought this was interesting. I did not, Reggie, I didn't expect this. You're in Hebrew right now. I did not expect James Montgomery Boyce to break with Luther, Martin Luther, and John Calvin on this interpretation. But I found that James Montgomery Boyce breaks with a traditional Presbyterian view, which is coming from Martin Luther, John Calvin, Augustine, and instead interprets this as the sons of God or fallen angels. And I felt that curious. In fact, he began to, he talked about, there's a book called The First Enoch, and I don't want to, man, I'm going to probably lose you in a minute, but I'll go ahead and do it. The Ethiopic uh, uh, text, this is, uh, this is a, a Bible not like ours. It's got 84 books, unlike our 66 books of the Bible. It, um, it has passages in it that are in our Bible, at the Council let, let me give you an example. Let me just say this, and it's hot. You think you're hot? I'm a lot hotter, and I'm getting hotter trying to get through this. The Council of, some people will look and they'll say, you know, how did we get this book? I mean, when I go to Barnes and Noble, I see the Gospel according to Thomas the gospel according to Barnabas. I see all these funny books. I, I I pick up a Catholic's Bible and they got the Apocrypha. How did we get this book the way we have it here? Well, one of those meetings was called the Council of Laodicea. And the Council of Laodicea was when the canonization of this Bible... In other words, in that day, the apostolic fathers or those church fathers gather together and they begin to they begin to, to under the leadership of the Holy Spirit they begin to set some books aside and begin to say they begin in essence to put this Bible together as we know it today. And because of their credibility, it adds credibility to our Bible. Let me tell you something. When when you go to Barnes and Noble, you go to Borders, you go to a bookstore and they say the lost book, or you know, all of a sudden we get these views now that there's this new book that's been. Di- Listen, none of those books have been discovered. There's nothing new about them. They've been around for hundreds, thousands of years. You don't have to be intimidated by that. But the Council of Laodicea came together, and what they did was they removed some books, and one of those books was Enoch chapter. Enoch 1, one of the uh, Ethiopic texts, they begin to set some of these off, but still they were recognizing that these books were important. Now you may say, well, why is this important because this has to do with our discussion about the sons of God. Is this the line of Seth, or are these fallen angels? Now, the reason that it is important and what we're going to do, I want you to take a right and go over to First Peter because we're getting ready to to in a brief period we're 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 going to show you something that every look I, David I don't know about you but everybody asked me this what was Jesus doing in those 3 days when he was in the grave Where was he brother Jeff what was he doing Well I want you to take your Bible and look at 1st Peter 1st Peter chapter 3 verses verses 18 through 22 now, First Peter chapter, and I was in Second Peter, First Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. I think I'm right. Okay, um, I use a different Bible at a different time, so I've got to think a minute. For Christ died for sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, made alive by the Spirit, Through whom also... Now watch this. He went and preached where? To the spirits where? In prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while what? While the ark was being built. In it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. Okay, now take take a right go over to 2nd Peter 2nd Peter chapter 2 verses 4 and 5 For if God did not spare angels when they sinned but sent them where to hell putting them into what and the NIV, it says, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and several others. What Peter does here, and what's interesting here, is that Peter is quoting and using texts out of the Ethiopic texts, out of Enoch, chapter, Enoch 1, that were tossed out by the council of Laodicea and not are or are not in our bibles except for these passages here now i hope i'm not losing you listen to again what boyce says here because i think this is important he says if these passages are related genesis 6 first and second peter if these passages are related as they seem to be the incident of genesis 6 has a bearing on the doctrines of judgment the afterlife, and even the work of Christ following His crucifixion but before His resurrection or ascension. The New Testament verses explain what Christ was doing when, as we say in the Apostles' Creed, He descended into... You want to finish it? Hell. So when you put all of this together... This angelic fallen entity, you remember, let me go back, you remember Satan leads a a rebellion in heaven, this Lucifer, light bearer, and when he does that, he takes a third of that angelic army, they're all judged by a sovereign God, and they're all cast out of heaven. But the question is, did that fallen angelic army somehow taint or influence or infiltrate Humanity, and that's the question. Christ, ultimately, we know this, went to hell to preach to that angelic group that had been judged in Genesis 6. He went to preach his victory over sin and death. We know that. or we believe that to be the case. Let me read on because this is critical and I I won't spend a lot of time, but I think this is important. Boyce goes on to say about verse 4, the Nephilim went on the earth, the sons of God marrying the daughters of men. And I get the feeling from James Montgomery Boyce, even though he's a highly respected Bible scholar uh, in the Presbyterian, yet he breaks away with Luther and Calvin on this. I get the feeling that he holds to this being a demonic, fallen, angelic group that is able to infiltrate humanity. Listen to what he says here. He says, what would be more natural than that this union would pr- produce the mighty men of antiquity? Since this verse specifically refers to the heroes of old, what would be more probable than that this is the origin of the stories of half-human, half-divine figures present in virtually all mythologies? The stories of Homer and other writers would be embellished, of course, but they may reflect memories of these ancient, outstanding figures of the pre-flood world. Really, to be honest with you, if I, and I'm, I'm crackling and making all kinds of noises up here, but really, to be honest with you, I would have loved to have read you a little bit more because he goes on to make this statement. He said, Satan was in the garden, listen to this, when the promise of a deliverer was given. He heard God say, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Like Eve, he too must have thought that Canaan, that Cain, the woman's offspring, was the deliverer. You remember when Cain was born to Eve, Eve thought that this would be the one that would bruise Satan's head. She thought that this would be the messianic line. Satan undoubtedly thought that too. He goes on to say, now I'm quoting a Bible scholar here. He goes on to say that the woman's offspring was the deliverer, thinking it would be Cain, must therefore have plotted to turn him into a murderer. In other words, Satan was involved in corrupting Cain, because he thought Cain was the messianic line. He succeeded. He corrupted Cain by getting him to murder, Abel, thereby eliminating one of Eve's children and rendering the other to be unfit to be the savior. Yet Satan failed. For he was soon to learn God simply continued on his unruffled way to develop the godly line through which the Deliverer would eventually be born. What was Satan to do? Now listen to this. This is an academic genius of our day. Listen to his conclusions. What was Satan to do? At this point, he conceived the plan of corrupting the entire race by the intermarriage of demons and human beings. The Savior could not be born of a demon-possessed mother. So if Satan could succeed in infecting the entire race, the Deliverer could not come. In narrating, narrating this incident, Genesis 6 is saying, in effect, meanwhile, back at the ranch the villain was hatching new plots. He goes on to conclude, and listen to this, Satan is still doing that today because he, is being, because he is a being who learns by experience. He is much wiser and more dangerous a devil today than he was in the time before the flood. Boy, that's frightening. Satan's been learning a lot. Let me remind you of something. He knows the Bible, he quoted it to Jesus. He goes on to say, a person who knows this and who knows that we struggle not, as Paul said, against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, will fear Satan and draw near to Jesus, who has defeated him. Boy, that's strong, isn't it? You know, when I read that, I thought about as a parent or as a grandparent, it is important that you and I marry the right person. Because this is the reason all the way through the Scripture, even Paul in Corinthians, when Paul warns us, he says, listen, don't be unequally yoked. You know, I've got got four in-laws... I got two daughter-in-laws, two son-in-laws. Listen to this. It's interesting to me that when I look back there and see Alicia sitting next to my son, I prayed for her back when she was a small child. I used to pray for her all the time. I didn't know her, but God knew her. And I was praying that wherever she was, in whatever home she was growing up in, that God was blessing, watching over her, protecting her, taking care of her, teaching her, because I knew that one day she would be, if it was God's will, under the same yoke as my son and the mother of right now two grandsons, and I hope there's more on the way. You see, we have an enemy. In fact, I wrote this down. Our enemy's objective is to infiltrate the godly with the ungodly. Satan seeks to infiltrate you your children, your family, your life, your home, with the media, with music, with friendships, with peers, with sports. He'll do whatever he can. He is simply trying to get into your godly line with an ungodly line. Have you ever wondered? You know, i watched the the funeral of uh, Whitney Houston. I believe that she literally was the greatest female voice of all time. But what a tragic life. What a tragic life. Like Michael Jackson, like Elvis Presley, to die in a bathtub of a drug overdose. And in that funeral, the Winans, C.C. Winans, spoke at her and uh, the Wynan family. Now, you may not know them, but they're an African-American gospel singing group. They are unbelievable. And CeCe Wynan and, and Whitney Houston go back, because Whitney Houston, began, she grew up singing the gospel songs in a choir, great voice of God, greatly used by God. But then the world began to pull Whitney Houston and there came that point that she entered into a secular agreement with a lost world, signed into a contract and before long her life changed forever. The enemy, the devil, infiltrated a godly gifted voice and turned her, abused her, used her and then let her die. He comes to kill, to steal, to destroy. And so this is the enemy. I remember Dr. Downer, John Downer, an old doctor there in Lexington. You know him too, don't you? When, when we were pregnant, and you may say, What do you mean we? I had back pains, morning sickness, I had it all. When Sheila was sick, when she was pregnant with Jeffrey, we went to the doctor, and I promise you, we both did, walked in and sat down like this. Man, that was horrible. We were both. We had two bathrooms. She was throwing up in one. I was throwing up in the other. But I'll never forget when she was pregnant with our fourth and and the smart remarks made, not by lost people but Christians, smart remarks. Do you know what causes this? If you don't shut up, I'm going to tell you. You know, all kinds of remarks. I remember us going to Dr. Downer, a Christian doctor, and he looked at us, and Sheila began to cry. Sheila even told me, she said, don't tell the church. We went and sat down with Dr. Downer, and Dr. Downer looked at Sheila and said, Sheila, what are you upset about? What do you mean? People are hurting your feelings. She said, godly people had better start having children. And we better have a lot of them. So here you have here you have a controversy, a theological issue. Boy, the Russells are excited now. Amen. How many is that? How many? Seven? Seven. Amen, Brother Jeff. We believe. But look at verse 5, and we, we've got to close in a moment. But look at verse 5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. You know what? The, you look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, and you think, man, here's paradise. Here's fellowship with God. Here's a healthy, happy marriage, a healthy, happy home. Here's everything functioning properly. And then we come here. God God's grief, pain in his heart. Every thought of man is nothing but evil. And you think, how did you get from here to here? Listen, look this way. Sin. That's exactly what it is. You may think, you know, we we think a lot of times, we think we can handle it. Well, I can handle it. You and I can never handle sin. Sin will affect your life and it affects my life and it affected the most beautiful paradise that has ever been on this earth and corrupted it just that quickly. So sin, and, and, and the writer here says that, um, well, y- y- you see here sin is an internal matter. It's the command center. As a man thinketh in his what? As a man thinketh in his heart, so, so is he. You see, we are what we think. Satan's not, listen, Satan's trying to get to you. He's trying to get to your heart so he can get to your head. And so here you say, well, you know, how could things so quickly move the way they did? You know the word imagination in the Hebrew, the Hebrew root there means to fashion as a potter. And what the writer here was saying, what the writer was saying, Moses was saying, because listen to this, you know what's happening here? He says, you know what? You know, here's one day. God just said, Moses, sit down. Let's talk. You take dictation. Moses, the world was so bad that every single thought man had, was nothing but evil. Why are we making noises right now? We live in that kind of world today, don't we? How hard is it for you to find a program or music or anything that you can watch or listen to without being tempted towards sin? You can't even hardly watch a cartoon anymore. Have you ever noticed children's cartoons? The word imagination, the word imagination here is that Hebrew word to fashion like a potter. And the picture here is that our thoughts, they fashion us into the people that we are. As a man thinketh, his thoughts fashion him and make him the kind of man or woman that he is. If you want to change how somebody acts, change how they what? How they think. And so what God does here is God looks at man... And everything in man's thoughts is nothing but evil. And it's not just evil, it's all the time. Listen to what John Phillips said here about this passage. He said, your enemy's trying to get into your heart by getting into your head. And he goes on to make this statement. Well, that's my my statement. Now let me read what what John Phillips said. John, I want you to listen to this, and we'll close in a moment, but I want parents to listen to this because homosexuality, same-sex marriage, and some of the moral issues, abortion, some of the issues that we face today, it's as if Satan has said, did God really mean what he said? You see, the first word out of the enemy's mouth was, the first word in Scripture, did God say? All he did was want to cast a little bit of a, a little doubt. Listen to what Philip said here. And this was written, David, I think this was written back in the 80s. He said, we have our corruptors. They are dedicated to the spread of pornography, homosexuality, sexual lasciviousness, deliberately, listen to this, they are deliberately trying to reshape society so that the abnormality and vice is the accepted norm. What our enemy will do is our enemy will convince us that we've been wrong for 2,000 years and we now have some new words and we're now exegeting, we're pulling things out of the scripture that we didn't really understand before. But now we have a new word. And let me tell you what that is. That is God saying into the hearts and the lives of some liberal preachers, some liberal scholars, did God say we've got a new word? And that's the danger. And he went on to make this statement. He said, God is grieved in Genesis 6, 6, Phillips John Phillips said, we do not, listen to this, we do not grieve for those we do not love. We do not grieve for those we do not love. God loved humanity, and because of that, he was grieved by humanity. Paul said in Ephesians 4.30, he said, and grieve not the Holy Spirit, and that is to make the Holy Spirit grieve literally sorrowful and sad. And so God's mercy, God's grace is on a timetable. You know how long that timetable is? 120 years. And then judgment comes. Herschel Hobbes made this statement about the flood. He said, whatever may be one's attitude toward the Bible, it is evident. Now listen to this. It is evident that the fact of the flood is written deeply in the minds of the human race. He goes on to quote Hinton Davies, another writer, approximately a hundred stories of a great flood may be found in various parts of the globe. Another writer, Frederick Philby, states in his book, The Flood Flood Reconsidered, said these stories of the flood are found among the ancient people of the Mesopotamia, uh, um, those in China, India, Indonesia, among the North American Indians, Burma, Australia, the Eskimos in the north, Peru, Polynesia, Chile, Farther south, all the way down to Argentina, Greece, the European countries, the nations, Egypt, Central America, and Africa. He went on to make this statement. He said, these stories appear in the folk heritage of every single continent on the earth and even the islands of the sea. I want you to listen to this, because this is critical. He goes on to say, and I close with this, from the first statement about the flood to the last, in the book of Genesis, every verse that can be questioned, examined, and tried has stood the test. We have called on history, archaeology, geology, radioactivity, botany, geography, ship, geology, geography, shipbuilding to produce evidence that would contradict one verse in the Bible. Not one sentence of the biblical account has ever been corrected by any of these. In other words, the reliability of the Bible by every single source. He goes on to make this statement he said not one he said to he talking about those groups, those fields to produce their evidence. Not one sentence of the biblical account, carefully interpreted in its context, can be shown to be incorrect or secondhand, or even to be unrealistic or unlikely. It is the recorded, reliable account of an eyewitness. God told Moses. Methuselah listen to this, go ahead and stand so you'll believe we're getting ready to close. I'll let you stand if you promise to listen. Methuselah, listen, Methuselah was the grandfather of Noah. Okay, you're with me? Now, let me read, let me read something to you. Adam had only been dead, Adam had only been dead A hundred and twenty-six years when Noah was born. Adam's life overlapped Methuselah's life, Noah's grandfather, by 243 years. In other words, Methuselah for 243 years sat and listened to Adam tell the stories of creation. Methuselah is the grandfather of who? Noah. And it's believed that when Methuselah died, that that initiated the judgment of God through the flood. Methuselah's life overlapped Noah's by 600 years. And the death of Methuselah, 120 years, Genesis 6-3, perhaps is what initiated the flood. When I read that, I get excited. Because I can just see Noah walking around with old grandfather Methuselah saying, Grandfather, tell me, tell me, tell me again what Adam told you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we just come to you, and Lord, we love you so much. We thank you, dear Lord, for the rich heritage and the lineage of that messianic line. But Lord, we thank you too that even when we come to a theological mystery like this, and Lord, we have not settled it. Was Luther right, Calvin, Augustine, is James Montgomery Boyce right, is Herschel Hobbes or John Phillips or whoever we may study, whatever we may pick up. Lord, there are some things in the Scripture that hold us captive that we can't seem to quiet, put together, and figure out. And because of that, it causes us to have even greater passion and love for your word. Because your ways are not our ways. Neither your thoughts are our thoughts. And so, Lord, we pray, dear Lord, that you have reminded us of the danger of sin. You have reminded us as parents and grandparents that we must constantly be busy and understand that just as the enemy slipped in, slithered into the garden and just cast those three words, the first three words recorded in Scripture, did God say? Casting doubt, causing man to doubt in that moment the integrity of God's Word. I think, as Paul said, that it is God-breathed. I just praise you for that. All Scripture is God-breathed. It's the very breath of God. Anoint it with your Holy Spirit. And we pray, dear Lord, that we would fall in love with it. We may not understand it. We may walk out of here with more questions. But, Lord, may we understand that you love us that you've given us this great book, your word to study. But Lord, may we also be reminded, as John said, the word became flesh and it dwelt among us and we beheld its glory, the glory of the only begotten. Just as that old African pastor looked at me and took my jacket, when I asked him, how do I talk to this village about people? Who have never heard the story of Jesus. What do I say? He took my jacket and said, Mwadi, pounding his own chest. He took my jacket and looked at me and said, Nyama, flesh. And then he said, Mwadi, Akafeka, Nyama. God put on the flesh of man and invaded his creation. And that was Jesus. And he loves every person in this room. And if there's one here that is not saved, that does not know Him, may they come today repentant of their sin and invite Jesus Christ to come into their life and be the Lord. And we give you the glory. Whatever decisions are made, in the name of Jesus, amen.